Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to Money Beat on the first Friday of the month. And you all know what that means. Jobs Friday. Jobs Friday. 209,000 jobs were created in July in the United States. The unemployment rate ticked down to 4.3%. It did? It did. Uh, and wage growth. I know everyone's concerned about wages. 2.5% year over year. To discuss the jobs report, what it means, where it's all going, we have, we're joined. From Washington, D.C., by Wall Street Journal Chief Economics Commentator Greg Ipp. Greg, how are you? I am great. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. Thanks for spending a little time. And everyone's you know, everyone's always scrambling around the newsrooms on Friday, uh, Jobs Friday. But let's... Uh, especially us. <laughs> yeah, especially us. Yeah, if you're following our live blog, you know what we were doing, you know what we've been saying. Let's find out what Greg had to say. Uh, Greg, just kind of broadly, you know, start us off. What, what did you make of this report? Well, this was basically steady as she goes, and I mean that in the best possible way because we have been seeing job growth in the 180 to 200,000 range for mm-hmm. a number of years now. And the July numbers continue that. If anything, they're a little bit stronger. We came in with a 209,000 increase in July, which is actually somewhat better than the 180,000 uh, economists were expecting. Now, we've had so many months of strong job growth that we're probably becoming somewhat numbed to just how fundamentally good this number is. Hmm. If you think about the fact that this is a aging country with a slow-growing labor force, how many jobs do we have to create just to sort of keep up with population growth, which would keep the unemployment rate from either going up or down? Mm-hmm. That number is around 80,000. Well, we are growing at hmm. double that rate. And so this is a sign of an economy that is still growing faster than its long-term sustainable rate. That is why the unemployment rate went down. Now, I don't want to overstate matters here. It went down, but by the smallest possible amount that it could go down and actually register something that you would notice. Right. Specifically, it dropped like, I think, like a hundredth of a percentage point. Mm -hmm. And that was just enough for it to round down to (laughs) 4.3 from 4.4%. But once again, step back for a moment. Most economists, whether at the Federal Reserve, on Wall Street, the Congressional Budget Office, they think like an unemployment rate of 4.8% or around that is what this country can sustain in the long run. Below that, you have shortages of workers, you have upward pressure on wages, and like night follows day, inflation will follow, and that's a bad scene. We're well below that level and have been for a while, and if anything, it looks like we're going to head further below that level in coming months. That's going to raise a lot of interesting questions for the Fed and for Wall Street. Yeah, let's talk about if we fall below that <laughs> that level. What are the questions that I think, you know, for the Fed? I mean, what does that tell the Fed? I think that – so first of all, uh, I heard it put this morning as the uh, the Fed has a high-class problem. Unemployment <laughs> is tr- dropping way faster than expected, and inflation is still lower than expected. Right. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want this problem if you're a central banker? But actually, it is kind of a problem. And the reason why is that the Fed uh, firmly believes that there are limits to how hot you can run this economy before you really start to collide with its capacity constraints. Too little factory capacity, too few spare workers to take the jobs that employers are trying to fill. And that invariably leads to upward pressure on wages, on prices, and that is a cycle they do not want to get into. 
that view that unemployment rates at this level and lower still firmly is in control at the Fed. Now, it would be one thing if we were showing signs the economy was naturally decelerating to its long-term sustainable pace of, uh, as I was saying, of around 100,000 jobs a year. There's no sign of that. A little bit of simple arithmetic tells us that at this pace, we will have the unemployment rate below 4% <laughs> by the end of the year. It's way lower than the Fed expected just a few months ago. It could be in the mid-threes at this rate by next year. And that sounds great. And it is if you're looking for a job. But the Fed, you know, they're sort of like muscle memory starts twitching and they say that's an yeah. inflation problem. And that, I think, guarantees that we will have faster rather than slower increases in interest rates. But So, so let's get to the, the sort of what, to my mind, is almost a contradiction of what should be and what is. Uh, the unemployment rate this low should be pushing up wage growth significantly and inflation significantly, and and neither one is moving significantly. Inflation is, I think the the June CPI number was about one point six year over year. We'll get the next one on Friday, and we saw wage growth this morning two and a half percent overall. Uh, th- those are not hot numbers by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Paul, I think you've put you you've posed a sixty-four thousand dollar question there. I mean, uh, you ask the, you point this out to the Fed. You say, "Well, your models say that unemployment at these levels lead to accelerating inflation, right. but look, it's not accelerating." And the Fed's response is, "Who are you going to believe, me or your own lying <laughs> eyes?" <laughs> that, uh, Fed Chairman Groucho Marx. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and um, it is true. I mean, the economy and inflation are not doing what the Fed expected them to do at this level. Inflation seems to be going down instead of up. Now. That said, there are a few things in today's report that do suggest the world is beginning to behave as it should. First of all, monthly uh, pay actually rose by 0.3%, and that rounded down from 0.35%. You know, I mean, they like to say decimal. Economists use decimal points because they have a sense of humor, but we also like to use them when we're, you know, trying to, like, make our point a little bit stronger. It was a good number for wages. That mm-hmm. only brought the year-on-year rate up to 2.5%, and I don't want to get run. I don't want to run away with this because we have seen months when it uh, improved and then it fell back the following month. Sure. But it's still, it's it's better news. It's not worse news. And as some of my colleagues have pointed out in the Wall Street Journal, it seems to be most pronounced for the lower wage folks, the ones that we, uh, th- that have had the hardest time, you know, getting any sort of leverage. So the world is starting to sort of like behave as it should. And the other thing is the Fed has been looking at these inflation numbers and arguing that there's a whole bunch of one-off things that are holding it down. There was cell phone pricing. There was prescription drugs. And that after these, you know, idiosyncratic factors drop out of the numbers, we'll see inflation move back to 2%. Now, as a cynic, I might say, how come every time there's a one-off, it always pushes inflation rate down instead of up? You know, shouldn't that be telling sure, us something? Right. That said, there's a little bit of n- news out this week from the Commerce Department that showed revisions to prior month's inflation data that, in fact, inflation is perhaps not as soft as it should be. Hmm. You take that news and today's wage news, and I think you have a Fed that is continuing to err on the side of let's not take chances with unemployment this low. So th- th- that leads to the question, and it was my you know thought on the this report. This keeps the Fed on path with you know its general plan of maybe tightening, uh, you know, unwinding the balance sheet in September and then one more hike this year, right? Oh, I would think so. I think people have basically gotten comfortable with the idea that in September they will announce plans to start rolling off some of the bonds that they hold on their balance sheet. I think the big question mark surrounds whether they will go for that third rate increase of the year in December. Uh, That's very much up in the air. I don't think the Fed has decided yet, but I'd say this report pushes the needle further in favor of doing that third rate increase in December. We're going to change gears a little bit because there are other things 
percolating in Washington that you need to be aware of in the market. So we'll take a break. We are talking to Greg Ip, talking about the economy, jobs, and a unnamed thing that you do not want to miss. You're listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio in New York City, joined in Washington, D.C. by Wall Street Journal Chief Economics Commentator Greg Ip. We were talking about the jobs report in the last segment, Grocer, and I think it's uh, we need to change gears a little bit here because... There is something else the market needs to be aware well, of as, as August hits. It's quickly approaching, and I think you know all of the sort of noise that's been coming out of watching the healthcare debate, the shakeup, and the senior staff of the White House mm-hmm. is sort of you know it's hidden the, the fact that we're fast approaching uh, the debt ceiling um, and, and the need to raise it. Right. And I remember back in 2011 when we ran into this debate again. And it really sent the markets, um, you know, to this really volatile stretch. Uh, that was back. That was in August 2011. Sent them into a volatile stretch. I think it was 400 point moves, you know, up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something I think that is quickly. Well, you had gonna, a real. I mean, you had a real political yeah. Donny Brook over that one. Well, yeah, I mean, it ran up to the very last moment. Right. Right. And you had you know S and P downgraded U.S. Mm-hmm. debt, um, and then you and that also take into account that Europe was start was having its own right. debt problems. Right. Um, the, the reality is, this is something I think the markets are starting to kind of wake up to, and as it gets closer, and the rhetoric around it could very much get. Um, you know, cause the markets to right. become well, and I, and a I lot guess, more volatile after yeah. a prolonged stretch of little volatility. The, the question for Greg, especially here now, is, you know, we've seen this so many times in the past, Greg, I think we're kind of numb to these debt ceiling fights. Uh, mm-hmm. Should we be? Uh, no, we shouldn't be. Uh, there, It really is kind of a frog in the pot kind of element to this that um, each time they sort of like push us closer to the brink on these things and we survive, we sort of say, I'm going to stop paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried about that, frankly. I mean, the Treasury Secretary has said that they will run out of cash uh, in terms of uh, being able to like... Right now, they're in this mode where they're basically looking behind sofa cushions for coins. <laughs> and they basically told us that they will have turned over every sofa cushion by the end of September, and then they're going to have to stop paying some people. In the past, they have always sort of been somewhat coy about whether that means they won't pay the bondholders or they won't pay the Social Security recipients or they won't pay the uh, right. you know, the soldiers' pensions or whatever. So we still don't know what they'll do, but I think the betting is probably that they will not want to uh, risk uh, payment to bondholders and that, that something else will happen. And that is a political uh, crunch that nobody really wants to tolerate. And yet, I can't at this moment see how we get there from here. That's not very far away. That's wow. only like seven or eight weeks away. And um, the assumption in Washington has been that because so many Republicans, especially in the House of Representatives, are utterly opposed to allowing the government to borrow more, 
that the only way for the Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, to get this thing passed is to, like, basically use Democratic votes. Well, what are the Democrats going hmm. to ask for in, res uh, in exchange right. for their support? So that brings in other questions. We don't have the government funded for next year. Are we going to have a government shutdown? In order to avoid that, will the Democrats extract other uh, you know, conditions like no funding for President Trump's uh, wall with Mexico? And then I think hovering over all of this is an awareness that one thing that the debacle over the Republican efforts to repeal and replace uh, Obamacare demonstrated was the lack of um, tactical and strategic ability on the part of this White House to get stuff done. I think that's worrisome. I think in the absence of a more sort of like seasoned group of people at Treasury, at OMB, in the White House who can deal with Congress over these complicated issues, it introduces an additional element. Like I said, nobody, mm. not the House, not the Senate, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the President, want to, you know, fail to raise the debt ceiling or default on the debt. But we are now dealing with a constellation of uncertainties that I think just raise the risk significantly of an accident. Yeah, it, it seems to me that I remember a presidential debate in 2000 where I know I'm going back a ways here, but I just think I, I think we've been kind of coming to this point for much longer than people realize. I remember a point it was 2000 and George Bush said something along the lines. It's not a direct quote, but something along the lines of, you know, the, 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 uh, the bonds are just pieces of paper in a drawer somewhere in terms of, you know, the sanctity of bonds and can they be, you know, could you possibly stiff bond hold? Yeah. And he just kind of raised an issue at the time. And I think I don't recall ever hearing a president or a presidential candidate make a comment like that, that United States debt obligations were not sacrosanct. And I think we have been kind of building up to this for a very long time. And when you start talking about people making mistake, Greg, and people being cavalier, I think that that whole attitude has been building for a long time, that U.S. debt is actually not as important as we think it is. Well, I, I think you're right. Now, to put a little bit of context, I think when Bush made those remarks in the 2000s, he was speaking specifically of the uh, IOUs that the federal government right, issues to the right. Social Security Trust yeah. Fund. Right. And he was making, first of all, he wasn't saying we won't pay those. He was just trying to make the illustrate the point that there is no cash in the Social Security Trust Fund. There are just IOUs. And he wasn't at all implying that there was some sort of like optionality about whether those IOUs would be honored. Uh, and secondly, um, most people in the markets draw a distinction between these internal chits that the federal government owes to other parts of itself versus mm -hmm. publicly held debt, where the money they owe is to like Fidelity, it's to like uh, State Street, it's to China, it's to like you know, the Singapore uh, fund. Right. Defaulting on those public uh, obligations would be a much bigger deal than these kind of like failure to basically mm -hmm. uh, pay your internal um, uh, chits uh, the way we've been talking about. And in fairness, every president, once in office, whatever they may have said, and that includes Obama, uh, Barack Obama, whatever they may have <laughs> yeah. said about the optionality of meeting these obligations as a senator or as a congressman or as a commentator on television, yeah. once they're a president, they are pretty, you know, um, uh, 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 strongly uh, assertive of the point that, no, we have to pay these obligations. And I don't you know, doubt that Trump at some point will be making the same points. His Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, has, like all Treasury Secretaries before him, emphasized the importance of raising the debt ceiling so that the United States, without conditions, so the United States can meet its obligations. I think, though, there is a larger question, and I've watched this evolve over recent years, that I do find a little bit troubling, that people have 
started to treat the United States full faith, the promise of full faith and mm-hmm. um, credit, as like a federal judgeship. You know what I mean? It's just another right. political football. We're right. going to negotiate right. over exactly. that. Exactly. And I don't think people do understand that that does cost you in the long run. There was a study done, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what incident it was, but back in the 70s, I think there was an accidental breach of the debt ceiling. There was, a, there was literally yes. a, a systems error or a bookkeeping error. Mm-hmm. We didn't pay our treasury bills on time. And it resulted in a long-lasting uptick in treasury bill yields that ended up costing the federal government hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, in the context of, you know, like of a two, $3 trillion federal budget and a $20 trillion debt, that doesn't sound like much. But every little bit hurts. That's money that we couldn't have used, you know, to, like, equip our military, to lower taxes, to pay our pensioners and so on. This is a cavalier attitude that really has to stop. No, that's, I mean, I guess that's the sort of question. I was wondering, you know, you, you covered markets before covering the economy. If you could talk to, about how important, you know, the confidence in the U.S. paying its debt is to, you know, generally America's fiscal situation, but also the treasury market. Well, first of all, you have to make a distinction between events, which uh, what we call the can't pay, won't pay distinction. Yeah, can't pay no, is when you're Venezuela, true. you literally do not have right. the money to pay your obligations and you default. That is uh, a terrible event and you see it in the uh, pricing of Venezuela bonds. The won't pay is we've got the money, but we're just not going to pay it. And that's a situation that you often see at the state level. You know, Illinois, for example. Illinois has all these bills piling up and the problem they have is not an inability to pay it. Illinois is not as an economic matter anywhere near bankruptcy. You have a political dysfunction so that the warring factions in the state capital will not pay the bills. What the United States faces with these periodic debt ceiling standoffs is much more of the second type than of the first type. And bondholders, people who own treasury bond debt, are going to make that distinction when they're deciding what to do. And they say, if we really thought treasury didn't have the money to pay us, we would be, we would have left long ago. You know what I mean? Right. It would have been like what you saw happen with uh, Greek debt. But when they see what's happening in here, they're going to like f- build that into their calculations. And what they really are going to treat this as, as is a bookkeeping error or something like that. That's why I actually personally do not believe these dark scenarios that there will be a cataclysmic you know meltdown or anything like that. I think there will be confusion. I think there will be annoyance. I really don't think that there will be a cataclysmic event in the markets. I think the problems. Oh. I don't think it's that's not a reason to sort of like soft pedal or to accept right. what ought not to be an acceptable penalty that the U.S. taxpayer and borrower is going to be saddled with. I think it's a reason to try and discount some of these end of the world scenarios. Greg Ip is the Wall Street Journal's chief economics commentator. Greg, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Hey, great talking to you. And everyone, thank you for listening. We will talk to you soon. Follow The Wall Street Journal on your favorite podcast app. Search WSJ on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and any Amazon Alexa device. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Chief information officers, long regarded as technical gurus serving the business, are often today's visionaries, evangelists, and change agents for the business. Join Deloitte's Lou DiLorenzo in conversation with tech leaders who've challenged the status quo, redefining the CIO's role by transforming organizations and industries. Where technology and influence converge, new opportunities and value can emerge. 